0: back to the para sports nutrition podcast my name is liz broad and i'm an accredited sports dietitian today i'm really excited to have with us mary hodge mary is the u.s para powerlifting lead coach and high performance manager and she has been involved in six paralympic games welcome to the podcast thank mary. you for having
1: me really excited
0: to be here Oh, that's great. Um, I'm really excited to hear a bit more about you and your background and also obviously about para-powerlifting. It's very hard to say that in a smooth sentence. Sure it's a tongue twister. It is. So Mary, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what your coaching background is and how you got involved in para-powerlifting? Sure.
1: So um, in 1995, I worked then full-time for United Cerebral Palsy of Nassau County here in New York in the U.S. And I had a gentleman come up to me and ask me, he was a is a wheelchair user, and he asked me, since I had got my personal trainer certificate, would I be able to train him in uh, powerlifting or bench pressing? And uh, at that time, I was completely unknowledgeable, and I said, oh, no, you, you're you in a wheelchair, you can't. He then proceeded to hand me a VHS tape, which I know I'm dating myself because those of the audience that know what VHS tapes are. They were really old school. And I brought it home and I looked at it and I thought, oh my goodness, people with disabilities, specifically wheelchair users, can bench press. And at the end of the video, there was a gentleman named Jerry McCall, who then ran terrible quality athletics here in the United States. And I connected with him and off went my career. I really didn't know a lot about bench press for people with disabilities, uh, but I learned very quickly. And I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to have some amazing mentors. And in 2000, was invited to coach as an assistant coach at the Sydney Paralympic Games, um, which was my first games. And subsequently, as you stated, I have coached five. Um, the sixth, I did press, but I was moving myself personally as well as the sport. So I did not attend the Rio Games. Um, mm-hmm. It's been an amazing experience. I feel All cool right, okay. to represent the United States of America.
0: Mm. And so can you tell us a little bit about the sport itself? You know, what, what does it look like in terms of the types of impairments that can be involved and some of the technical aspects of the sport?
1: Sure. So there are 20 body weight categories, 10 female and 10 male. They range in male from 49 kilo all the way up to 107 plus kilo. And then the females start at 41 kilo, they go up to 86 plus kilo. In the sport you can compete within your gender, within your body weight class. So although there are five predominant disability categories, cerebral palsy, amputations of the legs only. So if you were to have an arm amputation, you are not classifiable in the sport. Spinal cord injury, spina bifida, athletes with polio, and athletes of short stature. Then there's the layauth category, which is the French word for all other. And so there may be a physical impairment that fits in that category and that is classifiable by a, a group of physical therapists that are doctors and they look at that to ensure the physical impairments are within the ability of upper body strength only and qualify to compete in the sport.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it's bench press. And it's quite technical because they actually have to achieve a lift that is stable for a certain period of time at the at the top point of that lift,
1: correct? So um, actually What happens is the athlete lays down the legs are up off the floor um, And that the purpose of that is to ensure that every athlete is an even playing field So you cannot drive through your ankles Mm -hmm. through your knees The leg drive is completely out. So truly a test of upper body strength. When the athlete takes the bar out of the rack, they await a start command. What the referee or the head referee is looking for is that the athlete isn't moving with the bar. Their body isn't moving. They're completely motionless. Upon the start command, the athlete descends, and then they hold it motionless on their chest. It is up to the country and the coaches, whether they choose to give a press command, the referee does not. And then the rule says the athlete has to hold it motionless. So there needs to be a break in motion, and then the athlete ascends and holds it motionless at the top until they hear rack, upon which themselves and the spotter loaders help them rack it back into the rack. So that's pretty much what the bench proper, as we call it, looks like.
0: Right. Okay. And if- what if you have a number of people in the same weight category who achieve the same bench press weight? What then happens? Yes. Like, is it a tie? Or That's a fantastic question. There? Um,
1: you're you going to have to come to my level ones that I teach and prompt everyone to ask really great questions. Uh, what happens with that? <laughs> so as I described, it's the same body weight and the same gender. If you were to have two athletes that in that same gender and same body weight lift the same and they are able to place first, second, or third, it technically would look like a tie, but in the sport of powerlifting, the athlete with the lower body weight is the athlete that then achieves the podium. And so probably giving away a little secret, but I would imagine most countries do the same things. So I'll give away what probably, hopefully, isn't a trade secret. In the United States, what we encourage our athletes to do with their body weight is stay in the middle of the body weight class. So as an example, if you were a Mm -hmm. male in the 65 body weight class, that means that you have to be 65.01 and below the next body weight above you, which is 72. So you would have to be Mm -hmm. 71.9. That's your range. We would not want our athletes then to be 71. And we wouldn't want our athlete to be sixty five point oh one because that's probably a struggle yep. for him to stay. Yep. You'd want him to be somewhere around that sixty seven, sixty eight. That's the optimal range for that athlete yep. mid so that if he's ready to podium, chances are he is lower than the other gentleman in that
0: body weight class. Yeah. Okay. And so what does the training look like for a lot of these athletes? Like, how often are they training? And obviously, it's a very strength-based sport, so the predominant part of their training is in a gym, yes. correct? So
1: typically, you know, athlete athlete is different, as we know. Keeping in mind that when you're developing a training program, whether it's a linear, percentage-based, or conjugate program, what the coach or the trainer is looking at is, First and foremost in that initial assessment and a few after, what parts of the body is the athlete using consistently to live? And what I mean by that is, is mm-hmm. if you're a person that's a wheelchair user, you're consistently with the stroke of your tires to move, to ambulate, using your shoulders and yes. as well as really your elbows and your wrists. Mm-hmm. Well, those are three main areas that are being used in the bench press. So that athlete probably isn't going to bench three or four times a week because they're all or an Mm. athlete who is using crutches and canes because those crutches and canes, as they ambulate, meaning walk, are pressing against their inner uh, upper arms. And again, they're using a lot of shoulder. So that same position that we have that athlete in to walk on the crutch and cane is the same position now that they lay down and you put a bar that's loaded and say, okay, bench this and bench it perfectly. So most of our athletes bench twice a week and then they do their assistive or auxiliary training, depending on the word you use. And of course, cardio is really important as well as we know rest, nutrition, and anything medical. We find with medical, and I'm probably diverging off your question, so tell me if you want me to stop. But we find with medical,
0: no, that's fine. So
1: many of our athletes, if they have a UTI, a urinary tract infection, or they have a bad cold, or they have a sinus infection, they're thinking, well, medical means if my shoulders, my elbows, my wrists, my chest is hurting, I'll say something. But if I have a sinus infection or any a UTI, that's ah, no big deal. As we know, all of these things affect us. <laughs> So it's kind of a bit of an uphill battle until the athlete really becomes seasoned, meaning with the sport for quite a long time, to understand that everything that is going on in their world affects their training. One of the very first slides in the level one, which is the doorway into the sport for a prospective athlete or coach, everybody has to go through this five- to six-hour course that I teach. And the very first slide says, Mm -hmm bench pressing or powerlifting is a lifestyle. And I ask the audience, whoever the attendees are, what do I mean by that? But people give various and sundry answers. But the complete answer is you're dating, your parents are mad at you, school isn't going well, your car breaks down, you have a UTI, you have a sinus infection, you have a workload of work at work. All of these are things that affect you as an athlete. And so it has to be considered and you really have to decide can you handle all of life and training
0: yeah absolutely and you know i we certainly know that training capacity and and preparedness from to training certainly depends on a lot of things that have been happening in in your day i like some days you can have great training sessions because you've rested sufficiently and there's not too much stress and you've eaten at the right times and you're hydrated and then other days you know it could be that work was more stressful and wow well, lo and behold training doesn't happen as effectively so you know it is definitely a, a lifestyle component great um, that you and you know, a lot of parameters that impact. I
1: want to say about six yep. years ago we had a gentleman, it could have been seven, and um, we're, we were reviewing his training logs weekly. Our athletes do training logs because they're across our very vast country here in the United States, and so we're not with them every week necessarily, yes. or sometimes even every month. And so this gentleman hands his training logs in, and myself and the head coach could not figure out why was his training so poor this week. And we studied them, and we studied them, and we studied them, and we just couldn't figure it out. And finally, I said to the gentleman, "Hey, how much water did you take in?" He said, oh, you know, coach, I didn't really drink a lot of water. I had midterms this week. And so I was running from class to class (sighs) to be a wheelchair user and was very concerned that having to catheter between all of these tests and running from building to building on the campus, he wasn't going to make it to the test in time. And so
0: he just left his water intake by less than half. Dehydrated himself. Yeah. (laughs) Ugh. Yeah. And bingo. Bad training. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so what about the at a, at a competition what what's the time frame between the time that they have to make weight and their first and and the time that they compete is it like some weight making sports it's more than 24 hours so there's plenty of time to recover after that right. weigh-in what's that like with powerless
1: question so the current rules And these rules are expected to change by the end of February or March 2022. So I'm going to tell you both answers. The current rules say you get to the venue two and a half hours ahead of time. The first half an hour is for what we call kit check. So that's to check over the singlet, the t-shirt. We are a raw sport, meaning no one wears any kind of one-ply, two-ply, three-ply shirts to help hold their muscles tighter. We wear cotton t-shirts 100%, the labels are checked. singlet is polyester, 90%, only 10% lycra. So again, no, no, no support. And the wrist wraps uh, can only be a certain length and a certain amount of lycra, so on and so forth. Again, being a raw sport. And so mm. the athletes go through this kit check within their body weight and their gender, of course. And then they get called by a certain specific number that they're assigned, supposed to be random into uh, weigh-in. The weigh-in, what most countries do is the athletes do not eat at all before weigh-in. Now, that's optimal if you're competing Mm -hmm. in that 9 or 10 o'clock session. If you're competing in the 1 o'clock session, you're hungry, you become fatigued, all the things that happen when you haven't eaten. So obviously, that athlete in that early afternoon session is going to eat something, but not a whole lot. Because you want, again... Back to what we talked yeah. about earlier, you want to be on the lower end of that body weight. If you pull late session, which is three yeah. o'clock or five o'clock, well, that's a struggle. <laughs> um, especially if the athletes. Yeah. Are on the cusp. <laughs> One of the things we do in the United States, yeah. because I have lived too many times, Liz, through our athletes being on the cusp, then you get there and you're shocked, and then you have to pay a hundred euro fine, and it's very complicated and expensive, um, is we yeah. instituted, number one, a body weight rule within our own country. If you're at five pounds or more over, you pay a $75 fine, and it goes up, 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 until over 20 pounds. That athlete also has to pay the 100 euro fine, not the US fine. So now it's, it's probably about a $300 fine. That pretty much alone, the athlete. nobody wants to spend $300. The second piece of that is, monthly i ask our athletes to send me a body weight i don't necessarily want to see them on their scale typically i i kind of have learned what all of their toes look like but they send me a (laughs) (laughs) snapshot sitting or standing on a scale and pretty much i just see their toes which is perfectly okay and and the weight number we then send that off to our team nutritionist and she tracks it if we find someone's really struggling we look at What's going on in the body weight you're currently in? What's going on in the one above or below? When I say struggle, it's not always that you're high. Ah. Sometimes our athletes are really, really low. Um, yeah, just low. recently we had yep. a championship uh, in the month of December of 2021 in Tbilisi, Georgia, just south of Russia, and I had two athletes that came in maybe a kilo over. So that's an athlete that was being so conscientious. Both They both happened to be males in two different body weights. That they were on the lower end. Lower end is okay if you're not struggling, but if you're struggling, we've got to look at how much nutrients you're taking in, what the food is that is currently at that event, what, how much more protein we can put into that diet, uh, and those choices, and so on and so forth. We do also find our athletes uh-huh. uh, with spinal cord injuries and spinal bifida specifically; they have uh, bowel programs, and so they set those time frames every other day, not always. And of course, we want to be cautious that the evening before they bench, uh, competition that is, they don't have their bowel program set for that or the morning of. So you want to have that that evening so that your muscles because it is cheating that whole bowel program. But that's your original question. Sorry, I diverged there a little. Um, So it's about a two and a half hour time frame. That's okay. Once they wait, so they Those set times of when they compete kind of indicates to you how much they will eat Mm prior, and then once they weigh in, they can eat. So most people will say, "Well, hey, I can go to heck with myself now." But truly, you can't because once (laughs) you finish that third attempt,
0: not if you then have to compete. And
1: once you finish that third attempt, should it be a tie, you're going to have to weigh in again potentially Ah, for lower body weight, right? The new rules that are proposed, and we will know end of February or March, are that we weigh in 24 hours before. Um, Most people say, "Well, that's great. You know, you don't have to show up to the venue so early. It's not all this hurry up and sit around." But I I believe there can be some component of countries, for lack of a better term, uh, using this to an unfair advantage. Right? People might dehydrate their athletes, and then potentially hydrate them in ways that are unsafe. Uh, so there's much concern about that. We'll see if it passes or not. It was proposed mm-hmm. and it's seeming like it may pass.
0: And do you think that then they'd still do the same post-weigh-in if there's a tie in that instance, if they've weighed in 24 hours previously, I, I or is that also changing?
1: I don't know how you'd break a tie. We got a 73-question yeah. document, I think it was, And there was no proposal for changing what happens in a tie. The proposal was doing 24 hours Uh out um, because many of the athletes don't like to sit around that long, yet for countries such as ourselves who do it the right way, the clean way, we don't do any enhancements, I'm very proud to say our last positive test, not that you're ever proud of a positive test, but it was in 2006. I don't know that there are that many other countries. Right.
0: Yeah, that's a long time ago. Yeah. And I don't know that
1: there's that many countries that can boast yeah. that because we do it the right way. So 24 hours after mm-hmm. us, sure, we have the same advantage of not having to get there early and all of that, but is concerning what will other countries do.
0: Yeah, and you know that then increases the risk to the athlete health-wise in situations where they're already potentially at risk, you know, in terms of the dehydration and the risk of urinary tract infections and impacts on bowel routines and things like that. I, I guess that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but the, with you, the athletes that you have and what you've seen, I mean, being in the sport for 20 plus years, do athletes get better as they age in this sport or do athletes, like, does that training history and the length of time that they've been training seem to be advantageous? So I'm also going to
1: invite you to our coaches meeting because we just talked about this two coaches meetings ago. I'm Liz, you've got <laughs> amazingly great question. Interestingly enough, in para powerlifting, we see the mean age for athletes is probably older between that, like, 26 to 33, 35 range, which is older for an athlete A Mm -hmm. typical athlete, quote-unquote, able-bodied, certainly, and even for most para-athletes. So what is that back into exactly what you said? When an athlete comes out of the box, as we call it, and they're young, they're 16, they're 17, they're 19, they're competing as what we call junior athletes. That age range is 15 to 17 or Mm -hmm. 18 to 20. Once they come into open division, which is 21 and over, so there is no master's division, so Those junior athletes struggle a little, obviously, because you're competing against more well-seasoned athletes. And what we see is typically it's taking more than a four-year or one quadrennial, we call it a quad, to really make it where you're getting closer to podiums at just the regional championships. So a regional championship would be uh, the America's Championship that we're hosting for the first time in our country in the time that I've been in the sport, this coming July, and and your regions compete against each other, and then you have your world championships, which is everyone in the world mandated to be there, and then you have your Parateans, which is another type of regional championship, the Oceanas, and so on and so on, the Asians, and then you have Paralympic Games, and so what we see is those younger yeah. athletes do better at those regional championships where it's For us, North America, South America, and potentially Canada if they feel the team. But then once you start getting to that world championship, you're not doing as well because there's 107, 109 countries. But as our athletes are more Mm -hmm. seasoned, like our most recent Paralympian, Jacob Schroen, here in Tokyo, Jake was with us for 10 going on 11 years when he finally made his first Paralympic game. Mm -hmm. Um, The sport is getting more competitive. It's Mm -hmm. getting harder to to podium and medal which is what you want right you want better competition and the yeah. athletes are needing to take yeah. advantage of everything not only good programming um, but also program design meaning training but also nutrition support we have a, a metal performance coach and then of course medical and once an athlete dials all of that in I believe he or she really becomes more competitive In those first years, you're just trying to find your way. You know, there's so much to it. Each and every time I talk about the sport, people want to think, well, you lay down on a bench, you listen for a start, you listen for a press, you listen for a rap, you're good. Well, geez, if it was only that, right? There's assistive training.
0: (laughs) We'd all be doing powerlifting. (laughs) There's the mental emotional.
1: There's what you're putting into your body, what's coming out of your body. There's rest. There's recovery. There's uh, any of the medical aspects. And then all the life stuff. And so our young yeah. athletes, that's a lot to balance. It's a lot for me to balance, and I'm not that young.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what about injury risk, all of that lifestyle stuff and the medical? That also helps to... Try and minimize and prevent injury. Is injury something that is a big factor in powerlifting because it is so using such isolated muscle groups
1: Absolutely. I in mean, a
0: repetitive motion? Our or? biggest
1: injuries are obviously shoulder, elbow, wrist. Um, one of the things I do monthly, mm-hmm. every month I have, uh, I think I'm up to 15 athletes that I track. And so what I do is I spend an hour watching their training. I'm here in New York. No matter where they are in the country, we get on Zoom, and I watch their bench press. At that time, everyone Mm has asked, how are you feeling? And specific to shoulders, elbows, wrists. As our athletes become more high-performance athletes, they have a weekly app that they complete with our medical advisor of just basically what's going on, if there's anything going on, there's a drop-down, it asks for further questions. And then there's the typical injury of... As um, not injury, the medical stuff like, um, as an example, our spinal cord injury athletes have thermal regulation issues. So these are things that aren't necessarily medical as in an injury but need to be watched. So if I'm watching an athlete and his wife or or they have a trainer in the gym and I see them sweating like holy heck and they're not putting their uh, jacket or hoodie on and they have a long time between sets, these are things that you remind these athletes because an athlete with spinal cord injury has no idea how overheated their body is getting, right? Our athletes with yeah. CP and we don't have that many that are that competitive, but certainly with spasticity, depending on the day and what's going on in their upper body, lower bodies, it's not that it's not important, but it's an upper body, upper body strength sport. And so... Um, you want If they're super spastic, meaning their muscles are just kind of all over the place and jerky, which is common to an athlete with cerebral palsy, yeah. perhaps you look at, okay, let's not bench today. Maybe we're going to do band work or dumbbell yeah. work or, or see if they can have a trainer in the gym come over and spot them a little bit closer. It's just so important every session to assess the athlete and not just that, Oh, I'm first meeting you let's go through your whole history and then call it a day so each and every time you have to speak with them and that's where sometimes breaking up with the girlfriend or the boyfriend becomes a huge thing because it may not be a physical health but it could be an emotional health and that is just as important because yeah. that training is going to look like holy heck if they just had a up the day before especially on younger athletes mm-hmm. and so you find maybe they're, <laughs> and they're really trying to get at the bar and sometimes that's great, that explosion, yeah. and then other times they're being unsafe because they're just upset. And so, yeah, I, I like to say to our coaches, it's not only physical injury; it could be emotional too, and it has to be checked into.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And through Logan University, you've got a support program that has evolved fairly recently, like as you said, from 20. 20- Was it from Rio's sort of time that you got involved with Logan University and they're supporting the program? How important has that been to your program? It has been
1: monumental in so many facets. I probably can't even describe them all. But once we left where we were in 2016, we came to Logan University, which is a chiropractic university, one of the best universities in the country. And just having the services of chiropractor, just having the body – fat testing, and I know that's not the right name for it. I can't, the, the name just escaped to me. <laughs> having Body composition. A, that's the one. <laughs> um, just having the ability to have a home where we're housed and our equipment is housed. And then uh, consequently, our Executive Director, Dolly, Dr. Kelly Humphreys, started working with us to get the supports that we need. And as I mentioned earlier, now we have a medical advisor and she then tracks All of our high-performance athletes and those coming up the pipe, of course, our mental performance coach, which is so integral also, remembering that you train your body so much and all the physical components of bench and assistive training and cardio, but if you don't train your mind the same, you're going to get out on that competition platform and you could kill it physically, but you're not potentially because your mind's not going to be where it needs to be. So she works so much with our athletes and coaches mm-hmm. to um, ensure that they're where they need to be and they're working the all the aspects of mental performance. And then, of course, nutrition. And that really was all three were a missing link. But certainly nutrition, you know, yeah. athletes just don't know how to eat. Often times, not just in bench press, but in any sport, they're just going to follow up to muscle and fitness, which I call muscle addiction. And and most of what's in there is you know, most of what's in there is so inaccurate, and, and then you get the athlete. Our sport is very methodical. You wear the same things down to your underwear. You do the same things every time you approach the bench. You do the same thing when you're on the bench. You do the same thing when you get off the bench. You do, we're, we're just methodical. The coaches are methodical. We're all methodical, and so our athletes eat so methodically that they eat the same darn thing five days a week, and that's. As we know, not the best diet. And so we really had a need to have someone come in and say, well, why don't you try this and why don't you explore that? And did you know you could eat this? And, you know, carbs can be your friend. And, you know, water, water, water. And, okay, what do I do when I'm out of competition and my athlete starts feeling drained of energy? You know, okay, how about a little honey and banana? As we know, some of the countries we travel to, the food is so different than what we're used to. So then even having someone to consult with back home to say, this is what they have, what can I eat that's going to keep me Mm -hmm. um, satiated and nutritionally sound to where I need to be in my body weight. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I guess speaking about nutrition, I know that you have some fairly tight rules around the use of supplements. I'm talking about misinformation and and the popular media out there and the influence that they can have. Can you tell us about your your rules on supplementation? Yes,
1: and Liz, you'll be surprised to hear I am I am ebbing and flowing a little. But um, <laughs> <laughs> what, when I first started as a high-performance manager team leader, and this was back, I don't know, I guess 2013 is when I got the title, but I, I think I am kind of doing the job prior to that. Athletes were just doing everything and anything. Um, I can only speak to para-powerlifting. Power, I don't know about other sports. And as we know, most supplements here in the United States of America are not FDA, Food and Drug Administration regulated. And so in truth, I could go into my basement and slap a label on something and cook it up and make it look like a pretty looking pill with all sorts of cool colors that are going to attract people's eyes and sell it. And, well, I'm a high performance manager. Yep. People are going to do it because somehow my title sounds great. And so I banned all supplements. Um, because they are not FDA regulated. Mm-hmm. The struggle is whey protein, protein at large, whey protein for sure, and and that was a real struggle, and we had a few athletes that went out, bought cases, and had random bottles or containers in those cases tested, which I thought was really great, um, but generally speaking, our athletes take in mm-hmm. supplements. With that, it is really hard to take in what you need, the full amount of what you need. Can you eat it? Probably. Is it challenging? For sure. And so we are yep. looking at uh, the supplement line for it uh, because uh, USOPC, uh, I guess I want to or USADA, United States Anti-Doping, actually, uh, I guess recommends it if you want to say that. Um, so I have our medical advisor and our nutritionist looking at it. Uh, but currently our athletes take no supplements. My fear as the high performance manager, and I'm not saying anything here that I haven't said everywhere else, is once you open the door, you have that new young athlete that comes in that says, well, coach said we can. No, that's not what I said. (laughs) I didn't say you could go out to CVS and buy something off the shelf or Walgreens, which are our local uh, drugstores here in the United States. And so when you have that blanket no, it sometimes works better, yet to get that small advantage and looking at so many other countries that are getting that small advantage already, it it is worth it to look at something that's approved more or less. And so
0: that's safe approved, uh, tested for banned substances through through a third party tester like NSF certified for sport. And that perhaps has scientific evidence that it actually helps because there's a lot that are approved perhaps and, Tested, but not necessarily scientifically valid exactly. either.
1: And, you know, again, speaking to muscle and fiction and all these things that many of our athletes are looking at and pretty much what I say to them is if the big guy or the big gal in the gym offers it to you, it's definitely enough, you <laughs> know, because the high probability <laughs> is there's something in there that you're going to test positive. And, you know, ultimately, we're representing the United States of America. Do you want your name to be sent out across the world in an email saying you tested positive for the thus and so? What I'd like to see in our federation, which is World Power Paralympic, is if a country tests twice positive in a year, they should be banned for a year. And that would take them out of the Paralympic Cycle because that athlete would not have been able to compete at whatever the major was that year. Um, That has not been passed. Um, The United States is one of many countries that has asked for that. Because the same countries are consistently the ones that are positively drug testing, many of those athletes are also the ones that are at the top of the podium. So what does that tell you?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, not always a good testament to the ethical operations of some some aspects of the sport. Can I ask you how a potential powerlifter might get involved or get started in the sport? For sure.
1: Thanks for asking. So. First, they have to find us, so you could find us at logan.edu backslash USAPP or disabledpowerlifting, all one word, com. Once they find the website, you're going to look for me, Mary Hodge. You're going to send me a quick email of your interest. I'm going to send you an email back. I'm going to ask you what your physical disability is. And then if it's a disability that I'm unaware of, I may ask you to send me some video. I'll send that over to our med- medical advisor to ensure that... You probably can classify and then you're going to be asked to attend a level one. As I mentioned earlier, level one is the entry or the doorway into the sport. It's about a five to six hour course. It's interactive. Mm-hmm. It's benching. It's video. It goes through every aspect of what's expected as an athlete aspiring to be a Paralympic powerlifter, as well as how programs and things run in our country, how prize money won. Runs, which is something that Logan University developed for our athletes. Um, if they podium one to six, they can earn prize money. And so all of those things speaks about our supports and so on and so on. And then after that, the athlete finishes level one. Now they apply for their license and all the paperwork things they need to do. And finally, then they're on their road to training and we connect our head trainer with them to, who oversees a lot of program design so that even though an athlete might be in Kentucky and he's in Minnesota, he still can kind of keep an eye on what the person that's spotting and moving in that gym is doing. And then of course I have three other high performance coaches that do the same.
0: So generally you would you would need a support mechanism at home, at least someone at a gym who can spot for you, just from a safety and and a capability Especially perspective. Especially in correct? the
1: beginning, but I will say, Liz, as our sport is evolving. So many of the head spotters, who is the person who stands in the middle of the bar and lifts out of the rack for the athlete, are just not that great. Um, we're finding in international competition, mm. of athletes, their, their body positions even are set off on the bench by a bad lift off, as we call it. And so as our athletes are becoming more seasoned, mm. we train them to take the bar out of the rack on their own. The less variable that an athlete has to deal with, the better. And so we train the press command when I come in and I do my pop-ins monthly. And then if they have a consistent spotter. So today I watched a young man, Jake, and I trained his spotter today during Jake's training because this gentleman is going to be his spotter every time he trains. So that gentleman will do the press command at the same (laughs) timing that I will. And then next month when I watch, that gentleman will have a little test for me to see how well he's doing. Jake will also send me videos between now. And so Jake is strong enough to uh, take the ball right out of the rack on his own. So from the get-go, he's got one less variable to worry about because that's Mm -hmm. going to be consistent for him throughout his training and then all the way into his competition.
0: Yeah. And what about other countries? How can – is there a powerlifting – para-powerlifting federation internationally or how would people in other countries get in contact with someone to get started in their sport? And then – if an athlete
1: in another country was trying to figure out, well, who do I contact in my country? I just don't know. You could, the athlete could email World Power Powerlifting and ask, and World Power Powerlifting will know who the group, the NPC, the National Powerlifting Committee is in that country. Or um, many of our athletes are pretty tech savvy, so Googling para powerlifting, uh, power powerlifting in whatever country it is, will lead them also typically to finding their own within their country federation most countries have similar systems to us where athletes have to kind of go through an introduction phase and many countries have homes like we have at logan where those athletes will go there and train some countries obviously the athletes live together and train together
0: thank you and what recommendations do you have for practitioners like sports nutritionists, sports psychologists, physiotherapists, other people who may be working with powerlifting athletes? What recommendations would you have to them?
1: I think the biggest thing, and I say this to everyone that is not an athlete that wants to be involved in powerlifting, listen to the athlete. Don't listen because you asked a question and they answered you. Really listen. As we know, there's many forms of listening. If you just listen to get the answer you want, You're not truly listening. Some of the best times I have with our athletes or potential athletes is sitting down at lunch because no one's on script then. Mm
0: -hmm. And they
1: really speak about their world. They speak about their lives. They speak about what they eat. They speak about medications they're taking. They speak. And that's where you really understand what's going on. How are you feeling? Great, coach. Yeah. Okay. Well, when the doctor asks, how are you feeling? And the athlete says, great. Maybe at that next question, how is everything when you yep. get up in the morning? How are your shoulders? Be more refined in your questions and really listen to the answers. Um, you can learn so much when you really listen. Mm-hmm. And for all of our practitioners, I and, mean, yep. they are also the meat and bones of the sport. Um, any sport, not just my sport, because when our athletes get injured, when they need certain recovery, we send them there. Coaches, coach. Is coach Practitioners practitioners, yeah. right? but we need to know that practitioners are yeah. really listening to that athlete and, and what their need is And perhaps even touching base with the parent if it's a youth or the athlete um, Coach or trainer or whomever to find out really what was not only going on the day they got injured Potentially, but what happened that week before or that month before?
0: Yep, yeah. right And any specific recommendations that you have for athletes, powerlifting athletes? I
1: would say don't come into the sport, (laughs) set set goals, set realistic goals. Don't come into the sport and say, we're in 2022, I want to make the 2024 team. That's probably unrealistic because there's so much to the sport. Set reasonable goals, just like you do when you train. You have your macro goals, which are your four-year goals, and then you have your smaller goals. Do the same with what's realistic for you and stick with it. It doesn't happen overnight. And don't be afraid to tell your coach the truth, whether it's I don't understand you, you speak yeah. too quickly, your, word, your words you're using are too, too big. One of the things that signs will tell us is, Cues are really important and oftentimes a coach will give a cue that's so much higher than what the athlete can think about when he or she is in the phase of the lifting proper. And so it's okay for an athlete to yeah. say, Just tell me to put my shoulder blades together. Don't go into all the different anatomical parts of my body You know. And so <laughs> Yeah as I, Keep it yeah, simple. As I as I wish for our practitioners and our coaches to be good listeners. I wish for our athletes to be really good communicators.
0: Yeah, very important for sure. Well, Mary, I've really enjoyed having this chat with you and getting to know more about the powerlifting area. Uh, I usually finish off the podcast by asking our guests what their favorite food is. So, Mary, what's your favorite food?
1: <laughs> So, against what we allow our athletes to eat, I love Italian food. Um, I'm a real New Yorker and Italian food is the absolute best, but
0: you can eat
1: healthier Italian. I will say that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's choices to be made in any. So what's your favorite Italian dish? So my
1: favorite Italian dish that is not healthy (laughs) is lasagna with extra sauce, meat lasagna.
0: (laughs) So I'll just pile it all up. Ah, oh, fair enough. <laughs> cool. Well, Mary, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. Your experience is invaluable and it's a, certainly a, a fascinating sport. So hopefully we can recruit a few more people for you. But all the best moving forward and you know, keep up all the great work that you've put together with Powerlifting in the USA. Thank you. And thank
1: you for having me. It's been a lot of fun, really a lot of
0: fun. Hopefully, after that podcast, you've got a better feel for powerlifting and the nature of the sport and maybe know someone who might be interested in being involved. If so, make sure you contact the para powerlifting organization within your country. Apologies for the slight interference and delay in the sound throughout some of this podcast as well. Thanks again for listening to our podcast. I hope you're enjoying them. As always, if you have any feedback or recommendations or someone that you'd like to hear from, please let us know in the comments section on the website. And if you'd like to share the podcast with your social media, please do so. Please join us next time as we talk to para canoeist Curtis McGrath.